dramas, don't they? The sort of really vigorous presentation of arguments, the intrigue of discovering who is actually guilty and finding out what the recompense will be seem to grab our attention. The judicial processes that center, that are the center of not only novels and movies, but even reality television as you're invited to watch the cases of those willing to subject their legal dilemmas to the cameras. And what we find here in Micah is that he also unfolds before us a courtroom drama, but of cosmic proportions and significance, wherein God has a showdown with his people to determine who is guilty of breaking covenant with whom. So let's think back. So far in Micah, we've seen that God pronounced destruction upon his people, upon the promised land in chapter 1 to 3 that we've seen has been called the book of doom. We have also seen that God announced the ways in which he promised future blessing that should instill present hope for the true people of God in chapters 4 and 5 or that section called the book of visions. And Micah's proclamation should have resonated in tremendous ways as the Assyrian Empire conquered more and more of the ancient Near East. By the time that Micah's ministry ended, the northern kingdom of Israel would have already fallen captive to these invaders. That tragedy, though, in the northern kingdom should have caused... Judah, Jerusalem, to redirect their actions back towards covenant faithfulness. But we know that they did not. Corruption spread deeper and deeper into civil and religious leaderships. The nation ignored Micah's calls to repentance because they assumed that God would never turn against them. And now we come to the last section, the last book of Micah's collection of sermons called the Book of Contentions, made of chapter 6 and 7. In in this book's first section, chapter 6, that we consider tonight, God enters into legal proceedings with His covenanted nation. If you remember... One of the things that we've thought about repeatedly is that one role for the prophets that they served was that of a covenant lawyer prosecuting God's people for their violations of their pact with God. In chapter 6, we see that in that role in its most explicit form yet. Micah speaks directly on behalf of God representing his case, indicting the nation for their sin, and Israel is invited to respond before the jury, which we'll see. And so the main point that we'll consider tonight is when God charges His people with sin, it shows their need for a Savior. When God charges His people with sin, it shows their need for a Savior. 
And we'll consider that in three points, the call, the conviction, and the condemnation. And so first, let's consider the call. So as usual, I think the best thing to do as we dive into one of these chapters in Micah is, for me, briefly, to give you an outline. I think it helps give us some clarity as we explore the details, get into the weeds of this text. The the chapter falls into two major sections. Okay, so so in verses 1 to 8, God records the legal deliberations of His courtroom showdown with people. And then in verses 9 to 16, God issues the sentencing. So verses 1 to 8, the first half, is the actual trial, so to speak, and 9 to 16, the second half, are the sentencing. And for the rest of this point, what we're going to think about is in verses 1 to 2, how they show how God calls His people to contend with Him in the courtroom. He summons them into deliberation about about who had violated the covenant, which is an interesting thing. So, Turn and read verses 1 to 2 with me. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. So this is the initiation of God's trial. God opened the door for His people to defend themselves, as we'll see, if they can. God has an indictment, a formal charge against His people, but He is a fair judge and will give them the opportunity to defend themselves. Here's the thing. Israel has a problem. They have several problems. But they have one specific problem that we're going to think about here. Look at the place where God says they can plead their case. Do you see it? Before the mountains. And so the mountains will be the jury in Israel's trial. Now this, this may seem insignificant at first glance, or, or even obscure. Maybe this is just one of the ways that ancient people thought. The, the mountain location may not strike us as particularly important, but in fact, it is crucial to understand the weight of this indictment. Now, I think this stuff is really cool. Yeah, so tune in if you haven't been for just a second, because I think this brings some really interesting dimensions to the texture of the story of Scripture and how this comes to bear. So think for a second about the history of Israel. And if you do, you might realize that mountains are really significant, really crucial locations. And the major events... In the history of this nation. So, let me read for you 
One of the dilemmas I've had in this series is there are, I think, 20 other texts that I'd like to do as our first reading. But, so I'm going to read another one to you from Exodus 19, 3 to 8. Where is it? I'll, I'll read it to you, so don't feel like you have to turn there. But so, so in this, Israel is gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. Okay, so where God is making a covenant with this nation. And there we read, The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you or then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them All these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, listen to this, tune in. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, we know It was probably somewhat of a bad idea on their part to state things so confident. All this we will do. Because we know, however, don't we, that Israel quickly broke this covenant and repeatedly before they even entered the promised land. Which is why, which is why they had to renew their covenant with God at the event of their entrance into the land at Mount Horeb, another mountain. So in Deuteronomy 5, 27-28, Moses reported that the people said, Go near and hear all that the Lord God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. Note this again. And we will hear... And do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Okay, so we see in Exodus and in Deuteronomy... That God's people have heard the law and they agreed to keep, to do it, to fulfill the law. Where? At the mountains. Mountains are where God entered into covenants with His people and they agreed to keep the law as the condition of that national covenant. Now, Here's the, I, here's the juicy one. I think this is great. 
this is why you got to love the Bible. Other, I mean, loads of reasons, but this is a really good one. Uh, so we read in Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14 that Adam in Eden was both, quote, in Eden, the garden of God, and on the holy mountain of God. We, we know, don't we, that the Garden of Eden, which Ezekiel says was also on a mountain, that was the place where Adam received the law written in every human heart, which, if we break it, we stand condemned. Mountains, as you can see, therefore, across the story of Scripture are the place where God delivers the law. We can think, can't we? This should resonate even of Reverend Pearson's sermons in the morning as we work through Jesus's sermon on the mount. Does Jesus not explain the rule of life for God's people on a mountain, even if we see that more explicitly situated within the life of those who have genuinely have salvation by faith alone, mountains are yet still the place where God delivers the law. So, we're talking about Micah though, right? This mountain theme means that God did not select some arbitrary site, some arbitrary location for Israel's trial. He selected a place that already announced their guilt. We could illustrate it this way. Okay, so imagine a thief has been caught, and the authorities drag this thief into the courtroom where all the items that he has stolen over the years stands in a pile in the center of the room. And then the judge asks the thief to plead his case to the pile of things that he has so clearly stolen. Perhaps more forcefully. We can imagine a man caught in adultery. He's brought into the room and sat behind a table with his marriage certificate on the table in front of him. And again, the judge in this situation tells the man to plead his case, offer his defense to the very document that licensed him the right to wed his wife and at the same time now condemns his unfaithfulness to her. So, God summons Israel to plead their case before the very evidence that convicts them. He invites them to stand and speak to the place where the law that they had promised they would do was given to them. They have to argue against their own agreement to do God's commands. 
So, the call is God's summons to trial. As he calls Israel before evidence that condemns them from the start. That brings us to our second point. The conviction. So we saw how God called Israel. So he's called them to contend with him. But the courtroom already puts them clearly in the defense and guilty, really. They must plead to the mountains their jury, but the mountains attest their responsibility to fulfill the law. And now we turn to verses 3 to 8 to see the exchange between God and His people. So God says... In verses 3 to 5. So, so verses 3 to 5 are God's part of this interaction. So beginning in verse 3. God says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Okay, this section shows how God, even in this situation, remains more than a fair judge. He, he didn't open with his charge against them. The guilt of which was more than obvious from everything that's happened in Micah 1 to 3. Instead, God began by giving them the opportunity, opportunity to excuse their actions if they could find fault against God. He asked if they have a charge to bring. So, here's, here's what's going on here. If God was unfaithful, then they had every excuse for their unfaithfulness. They had reason to be unfaithful if God had done wrong by them. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Offered the chance to accuse God of any grievance they may have. Against him. But God presented in this discourse the real evidence on front. The book of Exodus records that God had saved Israel from Egyptian slavery and granted leaders to bring them to the promised land. So that's, that's what the reference to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam is about. Is God gave them leaders to help them even after He had rescued them. And then, okay, so we can think about Numbers 22 to 24. I'm sure you all know those. Those are everybody's life verses, I know. But it's a good story of... It, it recounts when Balak, the king of Moab, tried to curse Israel through the false prophet Balaam, but... God 
turned Balaam's curses into blessings for Israel. The book of Joshua. Okay, so here's, here's the last bit. And this is also good stuff, I think. The book of Joshua tells that between Shittim and Gilgal, between those two places, so one is the last place outside the promised land, and the other is the first place inside. So between those two locations, God dried up the Jordan so Israel could enter the land. Did a miracle to get them in to the promised land. So God consistently acted for them and had consistently acted righteously in His promises to be their God. Israel's fascinating response shows that they simultaneously recognized their guilt and entirely missed the point. So verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This responder who personifies and speaks for Israel acknowledges that they had sinned and now they need to know how to make it right. The response, though, shows that Israel thought they could actually do something to make up for their sins. The, the questions amount to asking, how much stuff do I have to bring to make you happy? If I bring this many animals, if I bring you this much oil, will that do the trick? So, interestingly, let's take a, a super brief excursion here. This passage has been used to support the Roman Catholic practice of confession. Where you go to the, to the priest, confess your sins, and then he tells you what you have to do to atone for them. And you sort of, you sort of see, we're sympathetic people, you sort of see why they might get that from here. But there's a major problem. This passage does not endorse this response, but presents it as exactly the wrong response, which means it doesn't actually support that practice, just to make that clear. Just, just think about that last question that Israel asked, what if I sacrifice my kid? 
That's a big deal, God. Would that make it okay? So this, this question likely places this particular sermon in chapter 6 in the reign of King Ahaz. So we read from 2 Kings 16. So verse 3 in that chapter and 2 Chronicles 28 verse 3. Uh, tell that Ahaz sacrificed his children. And apparently this representative of Ahaz's dynasty thought... That this was the ultimate act. Like this is the best thing you can do. If you've got no other recourse, this is the ultimate act of giving to the Lord. But scripture roundly condemns child sacrifice. Leviticus 22 to 5, just one example. The, the rest of these suggested offerings are just likewise tainted by the notion that we can buy back God's favor by some sort of offering, some sort of good works. So, verse 8 makes it overtly clear that it is entirely the wrong response on their part. He has told you. So, so they're asking, what can I do? Right? And God responds through Micah, He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? God's point is that the ritual system is not there to earn his favor. So if you ask, if you ask the question, God, what can I do? God says, be righteous, do justice, or equally well translated, perform righteousness, love good deeds that come from the heart, walk in a right way before God. That that is what must be done and perfectly if you are going to earn God's favor. We saw examples of that in Psalm 40, right? Obedience, not sacrifices. We sang that. And then Hosea 6, 6. Here, for I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God, God demands active Obedience, performance of the law, not just participation in ritualism. Here's the thing. We all, we all fall into that mindset, don't we? Even if not quite this same way as Israel did, or not the same way as the Roman practice of confession. But still, do we not start this track of bargaining with God? God, why would you withhold this thing I want 
so badly? Have I not served you? Don't I go to church every week? I'm at prayer. Why will you not give me what I want? Don't I? How many days a week do I have to read my Bible? If I do so, why do I not have more money, a better spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, my dream job? We, we bargain with God. We, we scoff at Roman Catholics going to confession and do the same thing on our way to work. And do we not bargain with God when we sin too? If you let me get away with this one more time, I'll put loads in the offering bag. If you don't punish me, I'll never sin again. The conviction is that the crime is obvious. But sinners pretend we can buy our way out of sin. And brings us to our third point, the condemnation. So we saw that God called Israel to plead their case before the mountains that signify their responsibility to have kept the law. And we also thought about how Israel's response to God's clear conviction was an attempt to bargain ritual sacrifice in place of rendering obedience. And we also saw how we too fall into that sinful pattern of thought. And now we're going to consider verses 9 to 16, where God established the guilty conviction and issued His condemning sentence. So, so verses 9 to 12 establish the guilty verdict. God cannot overlook wickedness, especially the treasure of wickedness in the house of the wicked. Corruption is widespread. People tampered with scales that measure food and money so that the rich can give, get more, sorry, they can get more and give less. They messed with the scales that would determine fairness. The well-off were violent towards the less fortunate. So God said, the voice of the Lord cries to the city and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod of him who appointed it. In other words, you're guilty and I am issuing sanctions. The rod of discipline is coming. Verses 13 to 15 then recount the curses about to befall them, which, which correspond to curses foretold in Deuteronomy 28. So verse 13 summarizes the point though. It's the, it's the blanket 
sentencing. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And verse 16 restated, restated the reason for you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. So, so verse, if you remember, First Kings 16 told us Omri did more evil than all who were before him. And Ahab, the son of Omri after that, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And that is what Israel is now doing again in Judah. And that leaves us in an awkward place personally, doesn't it? We saw that we can think like these Israelites and we should know that we are at heart as wicked as they were. So we can think like that lawyer in Luke 10. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we know Jesus' response to him, so like Micah's response to Israel, what is written in the law. And the man properly summarizes the law. And so Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So we not only cannot perform our way out of our sin debt, but we also have not fulfilled the law, done righteousness or done justice. We have not completed God's commands. And so first, I need to say, if you're not a Christian, then that does leave you just like Israel. God will strike you with a grievous blow and make you desolate because of your sins. You will endure eternal torment. Your niceness cannot help you, nor will it be any use that you were not as bad as the person next to you. The condemnation is God's curse upon sinners. But, for those who would come to Christ, there is hope. There is much hope. Jesus was stricken with the grievous blow in your place. Condemned in your stead. Moreover, we read how He did all things to fulfill all righteousness, don't we? He did 
that law, but so that we might live. That is why he was crucified. To satisfy your death penalty. And after he had done so, God raised him from the dead because he had completed righteousness and had earned heaven. And if you take hold of him by faith, then he earned that place in heaven for you. He stands there now to plead your case. To plead your case for you and present His perfect life as your record. And so let us flee to that Christ that we might find rescue, that when God might indict us, we are found justified. Let's pray. Father God, we do tremble to think how easily these challenges against your people of old could be turned against us, whether it be in the ways that we've thought about tonight or in countless other ways. We know that we stand guilty if we are the only one in the courtroom to plead our case. And so we praise you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who stood condemned in our place, who did the law, who did justice, who loved kindness, not for himself, but for us in our nature and gives us his record we might stand right before you. And we pray, God, we beg you, we are desperate that every single person in this room would know that truth personally tonight. That you would move, that you would break hearts of sin, and that you would make Christians. That you would free us from the need to plead our own case before the mountains. For we know that we at least stand condemned by the mountain of Eden. If not, the mountain on which Jesus preached the law in new fashion. If we don't have an advocate, best we try. We still fall so short. And so we ask that you grant faith. And we pray that you continue to forgive our sins because of what Jesus has done for us. And we beg you that you not just forgive us, but that you make us better. We know that we can never overcome completely our old man in this life, that we will always have these sinful inclinations lingering in us. But we pray that you would kill them more and more that there would at least be fewer reasons 
for us to stand condemned in the end than when we began. And we pray this not just for our sake, that we might be more and more free from our sin, but so that you might receive more and more glory from our lives. Send us out equipped to do that now. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.